Well, this morning, as we continue our series in Ephesians called In Christ, I'm going to tell you, the message I'm going to give this morning isn't going to be like the most inspiring message you've ever heard. In other words, you're not going to like walk out of here this morning going, wow, that was so inspiring. That's a great way to start a message, by the way, isn't it? I do want to say, however, what we're going to be talking about this morning is one of the most important subjects we can talk about. So it may not be inspiring, but it's important because if the statistics are right, we spend one-third of our life doing this thing. What we're going to be talking about this morning is our work. Work is a word that brings many things to mind. And if the surveys are correct, mostly negative things. In fact, the most recent survey I saw revealed that 65% of American workers are unhappy with their jobs. And that is true regardless of the profession. Doctors, stay-at-home parents, secretaries, salespeople, blue-collar workers, managers, pastors, you name it. People are discontent with their work. Now, that negative view to work is nothing new to our society. In fact, did you know that in the ancient Greek culture, most people considered work a curse? Have you heard of the myth of Pandora's box? You know, familiar with that? It's the story where Zeus gives Pandora this box, but warns her, make sure you don't open up this box, because if you do, you're going to unleash all kinds of hurt on the world. Of course, we know the rest of the story, right? Pandora can't help herself, so she opens up the box, and out comes things like disease, death, hatred, and guess what else was in the box? Work. The Greek word for work is actually panos, which has roots to the word punishment. Work was thought of as a punishment. Now, the question we want to ask together this morning is how we, as Christians, for those of us who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, who are now in Christ, how should we view our work? Should we look at it like the Greeks did there, or does God have something else in mind for us when it comes to this subject of work? Well, we're going to unpack that this morning, but for now, I just want to catch you up on where, you are, where, where we are as a church family. I know some of you might be visiting with us, but honestly, for the better part of a year, starting way last spring, we've been working our way through the New Testament letter of Ephesians. We spent all last spring in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, you can look up here, talking about our new identity in Christ. And the whole purpose of Ephesians 1 through 3 is that we might be convinced of who we are in Christ. And then this fall, we picked up Ephesians again, and we came to chapter 4, where there's this transition that takes place in the letter of Ephesians. If you've been with us, you know what I'm talking about. Paul begins to write about how that new identity in Christ impacts the way we now live. In other words, if this is who I am in Christ, and I'm convinced of that, it's going to make a difference in the way that I live out my life. And for the last three weeks, we've been in this little mini section in Ephesians where Paul talks about how our identity in Christ impacts our relationships. As we are people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told in chapter 5, verse 21, and to me, this is the key to understanding this whole section of relationships, that we are to submit to one another out of reverence For Christ. That is the basis for how we, as people who are in Christ, are to enter into relationships. And I don't know about you, I can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit because that is not my natural inclination in relationships. Two weeks ago, we saw how that works itself out in a marriage relationship. Last week, Pastor Brian showed us how that works itself out in a parenting or a family relationship. And this morning, Paul is going to address how that works itself out in an employee-employer relationship. Now, I don't know about you, but here's one of the things I love about the Bible when I really step back from it. The Bible doesn't just deal with these grand spiritual platitudes, does it? 
It's not like always up here in the lofty heights. It gets down into the nitty-gritty details of our life. Another way of saying that is that the Christian life is a whole life thing. It's a whole life thing. You are not a Christian unless you understand that every part of your life has been reoriented under the lordship of Jesus Christ, including your relationships. You see, here's what we've done as American Christians. We love to segregate our lives into different areas, right? So I, I view my life and like, here's my church life. Here's my family life. Here's my work life. Here's my hobby life. And pretty soon my life looks like one of those pumpkin pies you ate on Thursday. All right? All sliced up, I segment it off, and yet when we come to the Bible, we are told that God wants not just a slice of your life, he wants the whole thing. He wants to be Lord over every area of your life. So that means Christianity isn't just a Sunday thing, it's an all-day, whole-life thing, and that even includes your work. Now before we dig in, I'm just going to mention one more quick housekeeping thing. When I use the word work, I'm using it in the broadest sense that I possibly can. In other words, I'm not just talking about what you get paid for or your job. For, so, for example, if you are a student, and I know we've got a heavy section of students here, guess what? That's your work. And this message applies to you. If you're a stay-at-home parent, that's a hugely important work. If you're retired and you're volunteering somewhere, guess what? That's a work, and you can get something out of this passage this morning because all of those are opportunities for us to invite the Lord into our lives. So I encourage you now, would you take your Bible and open it up to Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Starting in verse 5, and we say this every week, but we always have Bibles available in the seat in front of you or underneath you, and we'd love for you to pull that out and join us uh, as we go through God's word this morning, you can find this on page 817. And listen, if you don't have your own Bible, we'd love for that to be a gift from, you, from us to you today. Take that, use it, open it up. If you need some help in knowing where to go, we'd love to talk to you after the service for that as well. But let that be our gift to you this morning. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray, and then we're going to enter into this text. And what I'm going to do is read the whole text out loud together, and then we'll dive in and break it down. Does that sound all right? Why don't you bow with me? Lord, we thank you that you are a whole life God. That you don't just want a piece of our life, just a slice of it. But you want the whole thing and you want to transform the whole thing. And you want us to see our life differently. Even this area of work. So as we open up this text, we remind ourselves, these aren't my words, these are your words. So help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear from you. Open up our hearts to engage with your Holy Spirit who is present now in this room for your sake, for your kingdom. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. 
Now, obviously, the elephant in the room right now is that this text is speaking to slaves and masters, not to employees and employers. Now, we've addressed this many times in the past, but I'm quickly going to address it again because, honestly, this can be such a stumbling block for some people. They come to a text like this and go, is the Bible condoning slavery here? Why does it outright condemn slavery? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that the kind of slavery that took place in the first century Greco-Roman world was nothing like what we think of when we think of slavery that took place in our culture here in the United States. When you and I see the word slave in the Bible, we immediately think of race-based African slavery, don't we? But that's not at all what is taking place here. In fact, historian Murray Harris wrote a whole book about what slavery was like in the first century, and he gives us four important points, and I'm just going to quickly run by these so we don't let this be a stumbling block for us. He said in Greco-Roman times, number one, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. Did you catch that? What that means is that slavery wasn't color-based or even social class-based. In fact, the Romans hadn't even conquered sub-Saharan Africa yet, so there would have been more fair-skinned slaves than dark-skinned slaves. Number two, slaves were often more educated than their owners and held high managerial positions within households. They looked and lived like everyone else around them. They were not segregated off from the rest of society in any way. You wouldn't have known a slave from a free laborer at this point. Number three, from a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers, and therefore they were usually not poor and often made enough money to eventually free themselves. And that's the fourth point he makes here. Almost no slaves were slaves for their whole life. In fact, many of them were slaves for nearly about 10 years, and they were able to buy their freedom at that point. Now, fast forward to our country's history, right? When we think of slavery, we're talking about something that was race-based. We're talking about a slavery that did segregate people off from the rest of society. We're talking about a kind of slavery that didn't allow slaves to be educated. We're talking about something that saw slaves as less than human beings. So to say that the Bible condones slavery is a gross misunderstanding. In fact, because the African slave trade was started and resourced through kidnapping, which is something the Bible unconditionally condemns in 1 Timothy 1, 9, 11, and Deuteronomy 24, 7. It was Christians, like William Wilberforce, who worked tirelessly to abolish slavery completely because, listen, he understood this could not be squared away in any way with biblical teaching, with treating other human beings. So all that's to say, Paul's not on some crusade right here to end an evil institution. What he's talking about Remember, we're in a section where he's talking about what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit in, uh, in our relationships. And this relationship could best be described today as an employee-employer relationship in our context today. So that's how we're going to go at it. So with that in mind, let's talk about our work. I've spoken on this subject three times in my past. I looked it up uh, here at Cherry Hills. This morning, though, I wanted to come at it from a kind of a different angle. I'm trying something new. You see, I've... I've I've talked so much about this. I've learned about this. We just had a men's study on the whole idea of work. And what I'm beginning to see is that there are two lies that exist in our culture, and it's true in the church culture as well. I think we really need to address when it comes to work. I want to address those lies and then talk about what Scripture says about those lies and how we really should view our work. So let's do that. Number one, the first lie we believe about our work, if you're writing notes down, I would say this. We believe work is a curse, And that leisure is the meaning of life. 
Work is a curse and leisure is the meaning of life. In other words, I work so that I can enjoy the rest of my life. Work is something I endure in order to enjoy the fun parts of my life. Have you heard this? Have you thought this? Let's address it. If you would, take your Bible, keep your finger there in Ephesians, and turn all the way back to the very, very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. It shouldn't be too hard for you, even if you're getting used to where things are in your Bible. It's like the first page in your Bible. And I want us to set a context for how God views work since the very beginning. I'm going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. <clears throat> Here we go. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now I'm going to have you skip down to chapter 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. First thing I want you to notice rightly about work is that, listen, you were created in God's image, and God is a worker. You were created in God's image, and God is a worker. God created us in his image, and part of being in his image is that we are to be workers, We see it in this text. This is where this innate drive comes inside of every one of us that we want to have a purpose in our life, right? You have this drive, this inner desire to have a purpose, to have a meaning, to create something, to cultivate something. Where does that come from? It comes from verse 26, which says God created you in his image. And we see in chapter 2, verse 2, that part of being in God's image is that God himself was a worker, Now, to further that whole idea, read Genesis 2.15 out loud with me on your notes there. I have it printed there. It says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now, here's an important question. Was this before the fall or after the fall? It's before the fall, right? It's before the fall. What are we seeing here? Well, we're seeing that even before sin entered the human race, God's plan for you, God's plan for me, was that we were to work. God's design for us always included work. When I was a kid, I would think about what the Garden of Eden must have looked like. And my picture of it was that Adam and Eve were on permanent vacation. It couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, we're told here the very first thing God does with Adam is assign him some work. And I love the variety of work God gives him. We didn't read on, but later on, God gives him not only physical labor to tend the garden, but an intellectual kind of labor to to name the different animals. And that's an important point to make today. There is no work, one work elevated above another in the Bible. All work is important. It's an important point to make today, right? I think so many people are discontent because they think, well, I haven't arrived yet at the most important thing I could be doing, or my work isn't spiritual enough, or, or whatever it is we say. Listen, Scripture doesn't elevate any work above another. Think about the variety of work we see in the Scripture, in fact. We see David was a shepherd. Luke was a doctor. Lydia was a retailer who sold purple fabric. Daniel worked in the government. Paul was a tent maker. Mary was a mom. And Jesus himself was a carpenter and a teacher I want you to hear this. There is dignity in all types of work. I read a story this week about Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., but hundreds of years ago, Martin Luther. And he was approached by a working man who wanted to know how he could better serve 
God. He felt discontent, right? So Luther asked him this question, what is your work? The man said, I'm a shoemaker. Much to the cobbler's surprise, Luther replied, then make good shoes and sell them at a fair price. Look at Luther didn't tell him to make Christian shoes, right? He didn't tell him to leave the shoe business and become a monk or do something more important. He said, make good shoes. Do what God has given you to do and do it well. We can serve God in a variety of vocations and jobs. So back to this lie, as we look back at God's plan for us from the beginning, all I want you to see is that in God's eyes, the very nature of work is good, not evil. It's not a curse. In fact, you were built to work. You were made to work. You were made to get something, to take care of something, to cultivate something, to create something. You're made in the image of God, and that's what he does. He creates. He cultivates. You're made in the image of God who loves to take things and make the best out of them. Listen, if there were no sin in this world, guess what you'd be doing? Working. In fact, as far as we know, in heaven, there's going to be work for us. Why? Because we're built for it. We're made for it. There can be no real joy without it. Hear that? There can be no real joy without it. Several years ago, I was driving our son. He was a lot younger at that point, and I was having that conversation. You know, you often have with your kids, like, what do you think you want to do when you grow up? And he's really into sports, so of course, his first answer is, I want to be a professional soccer player. And I'm like, okay, well, less than 1% of all, I don't, I'm not saying this, I'm not going to quench his dream, right? But like, less than 1% of people are actually going to become professional athletes. So let me, let me start having him think about some other options. So I ask him, well, what if you can't play soccer? Baseball. Okay. Like, he went, through all the, he went through all the sports. I said, let's say sports aren't even an option, right? Like, what are you going to do for work? And there was this long pause in the back of the car. And if you know our son, that is very unusual. And finally, he just said, I just wouldn't work. I'm like, oh, really? And his sister was in the car. And she's like, well, then how would you, like, support your family and stuff? And she, he said, I'd have my wife work. <laughs> said, son, we're going to have to have a little talk here. His view of work is that it's a curse, right? Of course, it's true that when Adam and Eve allowed sin to enter into the world, our work was made more difficult. Work has been cursed, but it's not a curse. Can you separate those two things? Our work has been cursed but it is not a curse. It's why God says to Adam and Eve, you're going to toil in the dust. You're going to try to cultivate the earth, and it's never going to go quite right. Thorns are going to come up and get in your way. Does that happen in your work? You got some thorns? Does it always go exactly how you planned it would go? Do people sometimes get in the way? Does your work life always go perfect? No. But it's not because it's a curse. It's just because it's been made more difficult. The bottom line is God's perspective on work remains Positive to this day. Is that your understanding of it? If work is a curse and leisure is the meaning of my life, if that's honestly how I view it, here's how my life is going to begin to look. I'm not really going to care about whether I get anything done or not. I'm not going to really care if I'm helping anybody or not. I'm not going to care whether I'm even enjoying what I'm doing. I just want to get enough dollars in my pocket so I can do the things that I want to do. And if you believe that's where satisfaction is going to come from, I say to you this morning, go for it. 
and discover what thousands and thousands of people have discovered. There is no true meaning and and lasting meaning in that. There's no real joy or contentment in that. You were designed for a purpose, and part of that purpose is to work. Several years ago, Disney came out with that movie, WALL-E. Have some of you seen that? It's about a robot that's left behind on Earth after human beings trash Earth, right, to clean it back up so that hopefully one day human beings can go back and live on Earth. Well, human beings at this stage in our history don't have to work anymore. Robots are doing all the work for them. But one of the main points of the movie is that as human beings, we were not created to be do-nothings. And the human beings in this movie finally come to a realization that their life has been basically become meaningless. And so they set about back to work. In our passage in Ephesians, Paul addresses this lie straight on, and he calls us to transform our view of work. Namely, that your work is not a curse. Here's what I'd love for you to write down. It's a calling. Your work is a calling. So if the lie is work is a curse and leisure is the meaning of life, the truth is work is a calling, and as we have already seen this morning, it has always been a part of God's design for you and me. What does it mean to say that work is a calling? A calling means God has designed you for a specific purpose and put you in a specific place, and by discovering those things, you can find meaning and fulfillment in your life. We see this play itself out in verses 5 and 6, if you want to go back to Ephesians there. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. That last line is key there. Doing the will of God from your heart. What's God's will for us? His will for us is to work from a place of calling, not from a place of curse. And notice in these verses how our work can be transformed when we view it as a calling. These verses suggest that work is something much more than what we do. It's actually a part of how God transforms us more and more into Jesus' image and his likeness. It's a part of our character development growth. It's a pathway he uses to mature us. Look at three things that can happen when we view our work as a calling. First, we are called to work with respect. If you're on your notes there, number one, we are called to work with respect. It says, conduct ourselves with respect and fear. That's not the idea of like cowering fright or anything like that. It simply means honor those who are in a position higher than you. Ephesians 5.21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's how you enter into any relationship, including your work relationship. This is true whether you're working for a Christian or not. This is true whether you believe whoever it is you're working for deserves your respect or not. Respect authority. We hate hearing this today, don't we? I was taught at a young age to question authority. And in some cases, there are times to question authority, especially when it's going against our faith. But for the most part, what we're learning here is as we enter into our work, we're learning to respect those God has placed in a position of authority in us. Listen, what is God's goal for you again? Go back to Ephesians 4.1. What's his whole goal for your life here on earth? It's to become more like Christ. Do you think he can use your work to accomplish that? Or does that only happen at Life Group and Sunday morning? Of course he can take our work and use, uh, use that to help transform us into Christ's image. And part of what he's going to transform us is in Jesus' characteristics and traits. And Jesus showed respect. 
to those who were in authority to him. So we're learning how to respect as we view work as our calling. Second thing I see in this passage is we are called to work hard. As Christians, we are called to work hard. Notice that little line there that says, with sincerity of heart in verse 5. You see that? That's a fascinating little concept there. In Latin, that's two words. It means sine sera. And potters would often put this on their, their pieces, of their pots, and, and, and so forth as they sell them because it literally means without wax. What are they talking about? Well, there were potters who would make pots and then they would get cracks in them. And instead of throwing them away, guess what they'd do? They'd cover those cracks with some wax and then try to sell them as if nothing was wrong with them. Pretty soon, other potters started putting a sign on saying, Sinisere, what did it mean? We haven't used any wax. This is the real deal. This is as good and as authentic as it gets. And Paul says we should view our work and do our work without wax. We should do it well and we should do it hard. Too many people today believe, and I see this in the younger generations, I have saw this in myself, that a better future is just going to happen to me. I'm just going to get lucky, right? I'm not really going to have to work for it. Some way, someday, my life is going to improve. That is a mindset of entitlement. And it's pervasive in our culture, but that is not the mindset God wants us to have when it comes to our work. In fact, read Ecclesiastes 9.10 out loud with me on the screen here. It says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. You know, one of the commentaries I read this week, I thought, I thought this was the coolest thing I read said that Christian slaves were the most sought after because they were known to work the hardest without wax. How could that be true? I think it goes back to this idea that they understood work was a calling, not a curse. Could we say the same is true today, friends? As Christians, our work should be at such a high level that people will never equate laziness or mediocrity with God. I'm going to take this whole idea of a calling one step further and tell you part of the reason we are to see our work as a calling is because God has placed you in your workplace to be a light. Often our workplaces are also our greatest mission field, aren't they? Some of you have taken the network class. Jeff and I uh, usually teach that. It's a class that helps you discover your spiritual gifts and passion. And in this class, we show a video from a pastor by the name of Wayne Cordero. And in this video, he goes through this little section where he asks everybody in the audience, and I'm going to ask you to respond to me here, so I'll just pretend I'm him. How many ministers do we have in the room right now? Raise your hand. How many ministers do we have? So like everybody in the room should be raising their hand. And that was kind of the trick. He's like, we're all ministers, right? God has equipped you to be a minister, but here's what God has done. Here's how God is so brilliant. God disguises ministers as teachers and police officers and accountants and government workers, and he spreads them out all through the, the city and the, and the state and the country and the world, right? We're all ministers just disguised sometimes as, a, as working in a different way. Paul understood this in 1 Thessalonians 2.9. He said this, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day. Anybody know what Paul did, what he worked? He made tents, and he worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anybody. 
while we preach the gospel of God to you. Now, I don't know what you think when you read that. My first thought initially was like, okay, so he made tents during the day, and then he did the really important work at night. No, actually, in Greek, the concept is, as he made tents, he preached the gospel to the people he was working around and with. We got to thinking, you know, like, if that's God's idea, if that's his plan, uh, what, is, what does it look like for our church And we asked some of you, if you're part of a life group, to tell us where you work in the city or outside of the city and so forth. And we put together this map. I just want you to see the kind of impact God says we can have right here in the city of Springfield. And that's like less than one-third of our church family right there. He's disguised the whole bunch of ministers to be working in our city. And the purpose for that is that we can have a bigger impact And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's not your behavior on Sunday morning that's going to demonstrate your Christian faith to the world. It's how you behave on the job, at your work. If you ask a person who works alongside of you or under you or over you or on the same team as you about your Christianity, guess what? They are not going to talk about what you're doing right now. They're going to talk about what it's like to work alongside of you, to work under you, or to work for you five days a week or whatever your job is. When we work as a calling, when we view work as a calling, we see it as an opportunity to shine the light of Jesus. So we work with sincerity, sincerity of heart. We work without wax. Last thing I want to point out in this passage is that we are called to work with integrity. Number three. Notice that little statement in verse six. It says, when their eye is on you. That's six words in English, one word in Greek. It's the word eye service. And I don't even know if I need to explain uh, what that is. It makes sense, right? It simply means I only work hard when my boss or other employees are watching me. The rest of the time I slack off. I service. I'm ashamed to admit to you that that's how I viewed my first job as a, as a teenager. I worked in a deli, and when my boss was around, I was a Tasmanian devil, buddy. I worked so hard, and then he would leave, and I thought, okay, now's the time to really have a break. Why? Because I viewed work as a curse. I was just getting dollars in my pocket so I could have fun with my friends. But the spirit-filled Christian doesn't view their work like that, right? They don't work hard only when their supervisor is around. Why? Because they know that their work is a calling. And ultimately, listen, we're not even working for our boss. We're working for someone so much greater. So we work with integrity. Integrity means keeping your eyes on your own paper during the test. Integrity means submitting only true figures on your expense account. Integrity means you're the same person at the office as you are at Life Group on Wednesday night. So to sum it up, if the first lie we believe is that work is a curse and leisure is the meaning of life, what has this passage shown us? It actually shows us that work is a calling, and the way we work with respect, by working hard, and with integrity can have a profound impact not only on our character development, but on the people around us as well, the people God has placed around you. So that's the first lie. The second lie we believe about work is that work is my identity. Work is my identity. If the first lie says, I work in order to really live, the second lie says, I live in order to work. Work becomes my entire fulfillment. It becomes the meaning of my life. I've done men's ministry for 13 years now, and I'm not saying this isn't true for women too, but I've just had a lot of conversation with men who really struggle with this. From being able to separate who they are from what they do, right? 
And so what happens is if things are going really well at my work, I, my identity is all good. But if things aren't going so well at work, I start to get stressed out. I start to feel less about myself because we've made this dangerous connection between my work and who I am. And so what happens when we believe this lie is that we start to get tempted towards workaholism. And that ultimately leads to burnout. Now step back from that whole idea there, this temptation towards overwork. You know where that stems from? It stems from a lack of trust in God. If you're burning yourself out at work, if you're finding your identity at work, guess what you're saying? You're essentially saying, I can't really trust God to support me and take care of me. So I'm going to make this the biggest thing in my life instead of him and instead of my family. Or you're saying, I can't trust that God is enough for me. Like all that stuff we talked about in Ephesians 1 through 3, that's good for you. But I'm going to add on top of that. And I'm going to work myself to death so that I can somehow prove myself. So that I can have an identity that matters to other people. So how does this Paul address this lie? He says with the truth, he addresses it with the truth that your work isn't for your glory. It's for God's glory. I'll say that again. Here's the truth. Your work isn't for your glory. It's for God's glory. This is clear from verses 7 and 8. Can we read Verse 7 out loud there at the bottom of your notes says, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. And then verse 8 continues, Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. What that says is that you don't work in order to impress your earthly boss. You don't work in order to get more stuff. And you certainly don't work in order to glorify yourself. The reason you work is that it's an opportunity to glorify God. I want you to think of it like this, and this has been revolutionary for some people. God has given you certain gifts and abilities, and he has even given you the ability to work, right? I mean, that's a gift he's given you, the ability to work. But those gifts are not meant so that you can just gain more glory for yourself. And I know I'm using a very spiritual word, glory, here. Whatever the glory is for you, is it a bigger house? Is it the American dream? Is it a savings account where you can finally breathe easy? Whatever the glory it is that you're seeking in your life, it's not why he gave you the ability to work. You are given those abilities so that you can glorify the giver of those gifts in the first place. I I would say it like this. You're not building your kingdom here on earth. You've been called to build God's kingdom here on earth, and that can take place in our work lives. What this means, and I know this is going to sound cheesy, But your boss isn't your boss. Jesus is your boss. Every day, Jesus is your boss. And so the most important question you have to answer every day when you begin your work is, what is my motivation for doing this today? Am I doing it for the dollar-dollar bills, y'all? Am I doing it to prove myself? Am I doing it to impress my boss? For the Christian, the only true motivation is I'm doing this to please and honor the Lord. And by the way, if you are an employer, and I know we have many of those in our church, Paul says you ought to be asking the same questions. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with all. If you're an employer, guess what? You also have a boss. And he's watching. 
And you're doing his work as you do your work. And we're told when we realize this that we will be rewarded with something far better than any earthy, earthly or temporary glory can provide for you. We will be rewarded with treasures in heaven where they can never rust or be destroyed. That's what I want to be working for. Friends, when we do our work for Christ, here's what's the amazing thing, is you can glorify Christ, whatever your work is. Whatever your work is. Your stay-at-home parent, you can glorify Christ in your work. You're a top executive, you can glorify Christ by the way you do your work. You're a doctor, a teacher, a salesperson, construction worker. You can glorify Christ by the way you work. So if the lie is my work gives me glory or gives me identity or gives me meaning, the truth is my work is an opportunity to bring glory to the one who gave me the ability to work in the first place. Amen? I'm going to close this morning with a story of two men who had the same work but had completely different views about it. Tim Keller uses this illustration. I find it so helpful. Some of you remember the movie Chariots of Fire? I'm dating myself here. I think it was like 1981. But Chariots of Fire is the story of two men, Eric Liddell and Harold Abrahams. They're both working for the same prize. They both want to win the gold medal in running. They're doing the same thing, the same work, right? The same training, day after day after day. But they're doing it from two completely different motivations. The first one is Eric Liddell who at one point says to his sister, who is afraid, he's letting his running get in the way of a more important work in her mind, which was being a missionary to China, right? Do you see how she did that? Running's way less important than being a missionary to China, in her mind. He eventually does become a missionary to China, but in this time, he says to her, you've got to listen to this quote. Jenny, you've got to understand, I believe God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That is a Christian view of work through and through there, isn't it? Work is a call, and he's understood that. God has given me gifts, Jenny. He's made me fast. And he understands that the purpose of work is not to build his own kingdom. The purpose is to glorify him. When I run, I'm pleasing him. On the other hand, you have someone like Harold Abrahams doing the exact same thing as Eric Liddell, who says, listen to this quote. I hear this quote all the time in our culture. I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. That's sad. And you can hear both lies at work in his life, can't you? Contentment is that elusive thing that he chases, and his running has become a curse. His running has become a curse because he doesn't even know what he's running for anymore. And i got to ask you a question. Even if he did win the gold medal, do you think he'd be satisfied? I wonder, can you answer a very personal question when it comes to your work? In your work right now, whatever it is, do you say, when I work, I am seeing how God has called, gifted, and placed me in this particular place. I have a sense right now that my work has a purpose both in my life, God is developing my character, but also in the lives of those around me. And secondly, can you say, I feel God's pleasure? I feel God's pleasure when I'm doing the thing he has called me to do. Or do you say, a little bit more like Harold Abrahams, I'm working like a dog and I don't even know what I'm working for. There's no joy or contentment in my life because I'm building a kingdom I know will not last. Which one are you closer to? I'll tell you, if you're more like Harold Abrahams right now, then you have to look at those two lies and you have to ask yourself, am I working only for money? 
Am I believing the lie that leisure is what's going to bring meaning in my life? Or secondly, are you burning yourself out because you're trying to define yourself in terms of what you do? If you hear anything this morning, I hope what you've heard is both of those will leave you empty. Both of those will leave you empty. As we've been doing in this series, we're going to take now about a minute or two. I've just said a lot of words. You need some time, some space to maybe take that in. I believe the Holy Spirit of God is present in this room, and he might have something specific for you this morning. I wrote this at the bottom of your notes. I sense this is God's word to me this morning about my work. Does he have a word of encouragement for you? Did he bring a coworker to mind and remind you this morning, you're a light in that situation? Is there some conviction going on in your heart right now, right? You've been believing these two lies, and you need to get straightened with that. Let's take a minute of just prayer. Sometimes I'll just open up my hands like this to just receive, to allow God to do a work uh, in my life right now. Let's allow him to do that. So I got to church this morning, my work, right? About to do my work. God gave me this sentence that really sums up uh, everything I've been trying to say uh, this morning. I kind of want to close sharing this with you. He said personally to me, Steve, work is neither a curse nor is it everything in your life. It's just an opportunity to become who I have designed you to become and to glorify me in the process. That's nothing less than how Jesus viewed his work here on earth, is it? He viewed it as a calling. And that he could glorify God. In John 4, 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's his motivation. That's my food. That's what I live for, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's his calling and aren't we glad that he saw it through.
for the glory not of himself, but for his Father. And now we have the opportunity to have that same attitude. My food isn't to do the will, is to do the will of him who sent me, whatever that is, and to accomplish whatever work he has for me. We're gonna have a chance to close this morning by singing a song. A song of praise, a psalm of thanks, a song of thanksgiving. As we think about what Christ has done for us with his work, we want to offer our lives back to him. So why don't you stand with me and let's sing these words.